0: Children with sensory issues, children with autism are often like canaries in the coal mine. They are sensitive. Their difference is so fine. They're not deficient. They are hyper-efficient. They are sensing things that the rest of us dull, ordinary sensors are not sensing.
1: How is it possible for a parent of a child with autism to become the superhero their child needs now? I'm Len.
2: And I'm Cass. When our son was diagnosed with moderate to severe autism, we went all in. We spent over a decade learning everything we could on how we could transform to help our son thrive. And guess what? He's doing it. This year, he ran for class president.
1: Each week on this podcast... We will be sharing the secrets needed for you to become the superhero your child needs.
2: If you want to learn how to tap into your innate superpowers to help your child thrive, visit autismparentingsecrets.com.
1: Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. It's Len. I'm here with Cass and a very distinguished guest. Carol Stock kranowitz is with us today, and she's in the arena of helping parents. She's a living legend. She's been A pioneering thought leader for decades. And she's best known for her first book in the Sync series, The Out of Sync Child, released in 1998. And it's really the sensory guidebook uh, for parents on how to understand and help their child with sensory challenges. I know it was on our bookshelf, uh, one of the first books that Cass bought. And her background, she was a music and movement and drama teacher for 25 years. In that capacity, she observed many out of sync children, preschoolers, and she began to study sensory processing and sensory integration theory. She learned ways to identify her young students' needs. And in her writings and workshops, which are in the hundreds and have spanned the entire globe, she explains to parents and teachers and educators and professionals how sensory issues play out, providing an enjoyable sensory motor toolkit, if you will, For them to help the children address their sensory issues at home and in school. She's a graduate of Barnard College, and they gave her the Distinguished Alumna Award in 2017. She's got a master's in arts in education and human development at George Washington University, and she's a board member of the Star Institute for Sensory Processing Disorder in Denver. So with that introduction, Cass and I are thrilled to welcome Carol to the show. Great to have you, Carol.
0: Oh, Len and Cass, it's such a pleasure to be here. You're doing wonderful work and spreading the word and helping parents learn about their kids and themselves and how to make this world a better place starting at home.
1: And it starts with empowered parents, for sure. That's right. So,
2: right. so,
1: So we've never covered this topic. And so this will likely be split into two episodes for our listeners. And today we're going to focus more on an introduction, if you will, to what sensory issues are, how they present, and uh, there's no better person to to cover that. And then an upcoming episode will go a little bit deeper. uh, The um, out-of-sync child, uh, Carol has been spending, I think over a decade, if I'm not mistaken, to revise and come up with a third edition of that book. And so we're excited about that. That's coming out uh, next month in April, 2022. And so, um, a second episode will go a little bit deeper and more in terms of what's changed in the landscape. But today, from a foundational perspective, we're excited to dive into this topic.
0: Wonderful. Well, sensory processing is what we all do, and it's certainly what I think about all the time. Sensory processing is a very natural event every second of the day we're taking in gazillions of sensations from our own bodies and from our environment so right now we are we're zooming so we can't touch or smell each other but Cass and Len and I can see each other and hear each other and we know that we're sitting in chairs and we know we're wearing clothes and we know if we Cross our ankles or recross them, and we know that we're upright. We might know that we're hungry or that we just had a good lunch. So we we have a lot of knowledge that we're getting from from our bodies and our environment. This uh, what happens is something uh, something triggers receptors in our body. So I speak, and the receptors in your ear receives the sound and tells me where it's coming from and tells you what the sounds mean. And then you respond with an answer or with an understanding. From infancy, even from before we're born in utero, we are taking in sensations. Uh, the baby is getting, the embryo, the fetus is getting tactile and vestibular and proprioceptive information. before before the baby's even born. Every time mom leans over to pick up the laundry basket and carries it upstairs, so is the baby. And every time the mom eats a hot pepper, so is the baby. So if the mother uh, sleeps a lot, so is the baby. So we want to remember that the baby is, is beginning to absorb all kinds of sensations early on and is responding very well. At birth, the first sensation that the baby is really good with is the tactile sense. The tactile sense is our largest sensory system. Geographically, it covers our entire body from head to toe, and uh, the receptors are in the skin. The most sensitive receptors are in our face, our hair follicles, the palms of our hands and the soles of our feet and our genitals. So these are all very, very important surface areas for us to know when something's coming at us. Is it going to be soft like mommy's caress? Or is it going to be stubbly like daddy's beard? Is it going to be uh, uh, a moat in our eye? And the baby is equipped to blink and to reach out to be cuddled or to push something away that's not not comfortable. So it's just incredible how nature has designed us. Um, I have five grandchildren. And when my 21-year-old granddaughter was born, uh, my son said, we've got a girl, come and see her. So she was three hours old when I went to the hospital. And I ripped open her swaddling blanket and lifted her up. And I wanted to check her tactile system. So so I stroked her cheek and she turned toward it. And I gave her a little finger, my index finger. I pressed it against her little hand and she gripped it with all her might. And I kind of breathed down her face and she blinked right away because she knew that wasn't useful. So, you know, she was already equipped to greet the world with her tactile system intact.
2: Oh my God. I love that you did that. Like, that is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really funny having two kids. Like my, I don't remember my son as much as my daughter, but my daughter was born two weeks after my son was diagnosed with autism. And so he didn't have eye contact, but when my daughter was three hours old, my sister was holding her and if my sister looked away from her, my daughter would cry. And as soon as my sister looked back at her, she stopped crying. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what eye contact's like. You know what oh. I mean? I was very, yeah, it was so kind of similar. Yeah. Well, you've, you've seen it both
0: in your kids. Yeah. So t- the tactile system is one of the very important systems of the eight that we have. Now, everybody knows that there are five. There's touching. Smelling, tasting, hearing, and seeing. And these five were determined by Aristotle thousands of years ago. And he didn't know as much as we know today. Generally, we say there are eight senses. Some people will break those down, and I've seen, I think, 23 senses are possible, but that's too many for me to handle. So I stick with eight. So we've got the tactile system, the vestibular system is. Another very important sense, and this is our sense of where our head is in relation to the surface of the earth. So we know when we're a three-hour-old infant uh, whether we're being lifted, whether we are being turned over, uh, whether we're falling. Uh, and our vestibular system is absolutely essential to have moving well for our well-being. There has been research on the vestibular system, and it has been shown that mammals will prefer being rooted to the earth. If they have a preference between cuddling with mom and being secure on the earth, they will choose earth security. That's how basic it is. We must know that we are grounded. And little kids love to test their vestibular system and get on the swing and and leave gravity, defy gravity It's so fun, because they have that security that they will eventually jump off the swing and be rooted to the earth again. And that's the typical child. So the vestibular sense, the receptors are in the inner ear, the stimulus is gravity. And when we feel our gravitational pull is changing, we know it right away, we're very, very sensitive to it. The proprioceptive sense is another sense that people might not know about. This is the sense of our muscles and joints. And every time we stretch uh, or flex our muscles or uh, orient our arms to get into a sweater, first one and then the other, or put on our clothes or walk down the stairs, whenever we do movement that engages our body parts, we are exercising our proprioceptive sense. And when things are not optimum for us, we want to get more proprioception. So if listeners are already bored with what I'm talking about, they might be stretching in their, in their seats. And that is what we do automatically to try to keep ourselves organized and alert. So think of the little kids at school who are wriggling and squirming. They're saying to the teacher, I know I really need to listen to this information, and I'm trying my best to stay with you. So wriggling and moving is the the nature's way that we stay tuned. Okay, there's another sense that people don't know so much about, and that is interoception. Interoception means awareness of our internal organs. So most of us know if we're hungry or thirsty or have to go to the bathroom. Uh, We know when we're sweaty or cold or madly in love and we have butterflies in our stomach every time we think about our beloved. We are aware of sexual arousal. All of this is interoception. And you don't know what your spleen is doing probably at this moment but you know what your bladder's doing and we need to have all of those organs coming along really well little kids will know when they're hungry and when they need to urinate for instance if or if, if their interoception is smooth and if they don't know those things that can be an indication of some sensory processing differences or disorder okay so i've mentioned the vestibular the proprioceptive and the interoception senses. These are sometimes called internal senses. I think of them as the private senses. You don't know when I need to poop, but I sure do. I don't know when you feel dizzy. If you say to me, I can't bear going up on this escalator, I might think, well, It's just an escalator because my vestibular system isn't bothered by it. But it would be so much nicer for you if I said, Cass and Lynn, my gosh, let's just walk up the stairs slowly and hold on to the banister. I don't have to feel your discomfort to understand it, but I need to be aware of your discomfort to understand it. That's what I hope parents can be. They can be good detectives when their little kids can't say, there is no way I'm going on that swing at the playground. You cannot make me for any reason get on that swing. It's not that the child is being willfully negative or trying to press your buttons or is inadequate in any way. That child's sensory system is saying, I simply can't do it. Or if you make me, I will have a meltdown. Is that what you want?
1: (laughs) Right. The the, the idea of a detective is, is, I love that you mentioned that because the people who have had the biggest impact on our perspective are the ones who really kind of keep using that term because it is about curiosity. So whether it's Patricia Lemmer, who we've had on a few times, who's the quote unquote the autism detective, and even um, Ron Kaufman um, and Kate Wilde were recently on talking about meltdowns exactly that you met what you mentioned i mean if you want to help your child with challenging situations like that to get curious to become that detective and i think that was the first time with with ron was the introduction of this introception concept that you mentioned i, I hadn't really heard that before although early on in our journey with you know therapy occupational therapy i heard proprioception i didn't really understand it fully so that made sense but this introception and What's the felt sense within the child is is really powerful to to go yeah. there and to try to look at things from that vantage point.
0: And Cass, you you mentioned uh, earlier that your your son is fifteen. Yeah, is that right? You are witnessing a whole mess of in, introception right now <laughs> as as uh, as hormones <laughs> surge and uh, and there it is. And you know you've got to think. When behavior isn't something that you expect, you need to remember that the child would like to behave in an orderly, organized way. We all would. And when, and when the kid is not, it's not that he won't, it's that he can't. So three senses are internal, private senses, interoception, proprioception, and vestibular. The tactile sense also, there's a lot of internal stuff like inside your mouth. You're the only one who knows what a canker sore feels like in your mouth. But tactile is mostly external along with the others that Aristotle talked about, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, and tasting. And those are external or environmental senses. Something out in the environment happens that awakens our receptors. uh, a bird flies from the branch and and I can see it, you can see it, everybody can see it. A door closes, everybody can hear that door close. And it's how we respond to those uh, sensory messages uh, that keeps us rolling along. So most of us develop good vision and hearing, for instance, after say, four or five years of development, the kindergartner is expected to go to the school, sit in a seat for a certain amount of time, listen to the teacher, follow instructions, play nicely, and, and, and do all that and be able to see the book that the teacher holds and listen to the song. And so our expectations for the young child at school depend on an early childhood where the kid is practicing all about his senses. And to do that, the way Mother Nature has it planned, uh, we would all be outside most of the time. There would, in fact, not be an inside. <laughs> you know, we're only, evolutionarily speaking, what, 10,000 years old. Uh, we're designed to um, be helpful and part of the community. At the minute we can carry a stick or pick a berry or do all the other things that are necessary for gathering food, building structure to keep us out of the wind, uh, we're, not des- we're, we're not designed for a sedentary life. And in that four or five years, ideally the kid is seeing all kinds of things, looking at the horizon learning what's over there and how fast is it coming toward me and what do I need to do in response to that? Is that a saber-toothed tiger coming to eat me up? Or is that daddy? Do I go climb this tree to get away from it or do I run to it? We are used to eating a lot of different things too and and feeling different textures in our mouths and determining, oh, that's too sour. That's too rancid, many, many sensory experiences is is the point of uh, of early childhood development. Now, when all things go well, that's great. That's somebody else's child. <laughs> Where everything <Yeah>. is going, <laughs> going well. <laughs> um, for our listeners today, you're listening because you have a child with differences. And these can be... All eight sensory systems can have some. What Jean Ayres, the occupational therapist who developed the theory of sensory processing, what she called a traffic jam in the brain. It can be that your kid takes in sensations just like everybody. There's nothing uh, damaged or diseased about the receptors in the inner ear, in the skin, in the nose. Uh, the information comes in just the way it does for everybody, but somehow in the nervous system, in the brain, um, the uh, the information gets garbled, or it gets connected with it get connected or integrated with other sensory information too slowly, or not at all.
2: Do you know if so? Both of my children were C sections. And I'm just wondering the impact, as you've been talking, I'm thinking about like, you know, part of a, you know, vaginal delivery is the, you know, going through the birth canal, which neither of my kids had that experience. And I'm just wondering, is that really one of the, besides what the baby experiences in the mother's room, that delivery, like, was that kind of almost a helpful transition that my kids mm-hmm. missed out on, which might also contribute to their, maybe sensory overload, or their inability to kind of regulate, um, as well as some, you know, maybe vaginal delivery children?
0: Yeah, Um, I'm not the one to answer that. I think an OT could answer that better. I, I will say that nature's design is for that journey to be the baby's first obstacle course. And it's, helpful to be born vaginally.
1: (laughs) So is it safe to say that if your child does have sensory processing issues, as opposed to like something with the input, which we're not talking about, that's all fine. And it's more of a processing issue. It could be that a C-section instead of vaginal delivery might be a contributor, perhaps, you know, again, other people may weigh in, but if someone's wondering, well, why does my child have these sensory challenges that Perhaps if you're if you're endeavoring to understand well why that perhaps might be a contributor. Yes, so. it might
0: be. I have a limited knowledge base here, but I I will say that I found it interesting when I was a teacher to um, learn that some of the children that I taught who were loose and floppy kids, who were kind of low tone kids, I was interested to learn that some of several of them had been born by C-section. So that suggested, and this is my speculation, that yeah. they they didn't have the that um uh, tremendous organized oomph to get out on their own. But there's so many reasons for a C-section. I mean it could be the sure. child does have the oomph and the mom's body parts don't.
2: Right. Or neck three times, you know, a cord around a neck three times and yeah, never of Right. So. Yeah.
0: Okay, so what happens when when sensory processing is not a smooth process? The information comes in, it gets garbled or delayed or not delivered. And so the response is delayed or out of sync. So think sensory in, sensory in, 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 and then motor out. That's the sensory motorcycle. We take sensations in. Our nervous system tells us what it is and how we should respond, and we respond. So think of the late processor. This is the the child who might be Albert Einstein or Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but we don't know it because the tunes are stuck in his head. (laughs) He can't get it out and what we want to do as parents and teachers is find a way to you know find that avenue to help to help what lies within come out i had an epiphany as a teacher that every child and this might sound really nuts every child is shakespeare or mozart or einstein and it's just that the conditions are not perfect enough for that child to eat to to let out all his wondering and his insights and his um predictions that's what i want to do i want i want parents to figure out how to let it out and i want that child to have that wonderful satisfaction
2: love it it's unlocking their gifts uh, yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah right i want to move to a, something slightly Different about what we need our sensations for, because again, um, you'll. I'm a broken record about this: how we must get our kids moving, and outdoors is the the, the best place to do it. Parents want their children to be, to be successful academically. Flashcards ain't going to do it. Video games and all the the two dimensional screens uh, are not as helpful as the real thing. It's hands-on, three-dimensional experiences that really matter. And the more we give our kids these experiences, the more finely tuned their their sensory systems become. Here's what we need sensations for. And don't forget it. The first thing is survival. We use our sensations to tell us that we're falling off the cliff. So our visual system tells us you are at the edge of the cliff step back and we if if we get to the edge of the cliff and we look down it's not just our vision that tells us it's our um vestibular sense too we uh which is very connected to the visual sense so we we look down there and we know that we are in peril and we step back of course we put some milk on our cereal and then and take a whiff of it, maybe just bring the spoon to our noses and that should be close enough to tell us that the milk is sour. We so we have our nose to tell us if we miss the nose detective, we've got the tongue detective. (laughs) And so we spit we spit out something that is going to hurt us. So the very first thing we do with our senses is survive. And why why is that important? Well we have to survive until we're old enough to have babies. That's the whole plan. Do you know there are uh, two human activities that I know of that use all eight sensory systems simultaneously, and wow. those are eating and making love. Um, right now, Len, Cass, and I are using our vision and our hearing, and our listeners are using their hearing. You might not remember this because the more sensations you use, the more memory you're going to have too. So you're going to have to listen to it again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just wondering, so like our son wasn't able, his basically, he was an, is not a nosmic whatever. So he couldn't smell for until he was 10 years old. And then he developed a sense of smell, which was kind of interesting because like, Before, at one point, he was a really picky eater and I never forced fed him, but I actually instead got what he liked. I ended up putting it in my mouth, seeing what textures and, you know, how it felt on my tongue. So even though he necessarily couldn't smell it, it was kind of a text. It ended up being more of a feeling in the mouth that kind of got me to get get him more nourished. Um, But eventually he did start smelling things again. But it's kind of interesting because if you, like you said, eating, you involve all eight senses. But if you have something amiss, there's going to be an element that we just assume is there that isn't. And so it's kind of how do you support your child not knowing if they actually do have all the ability to integrate all eight
0: Right, I mean, you can't ask a child to tell you what something smells like if he doesn't have a sense of smell, and you wouldn't know. I mean, how can he? A little kid's not going to say, "I have seven senses working," but my smell. Right. and especially <laughs> it kind
2: who of might be speech delayed, right? So it's uh-huh.
0: like that's right, that's right. We really have to be good detectives. Okay, so when we when we use our sensations to um, help us survive and we feel safe, then. We can free up our sen- sensory systems to learn, but don't think for a second. You can teach a child who's not safe anything, a child or an adult. If we're not safe, that's primary. Okay? We're doing everything we can to stay alive.
1: Is it safe to say that if a child or an adult has unmet sensory needs, that by definition, there's a lack of safety if they are not yes. having those needs met?
0: Yes, yes, get back to that little kid I mentioned who's wriggling in his chair at school and he's trying to get proprioception and he's trying to he's he's got the collar of his t shirt in his mouth and the hem of his t shirt taut around his knees and he's maybe he's he's rocking back and forth on his chair and yeah, he's trying to get vestibular and proprioceptive and tactile input in so that he can he can stay on info in focus because every child wants to learn so okay so when, when we feel safe when our chair is not tipping you know how f- three legs of a school chair sometimes hit the ground and hardly ever form all right if a child has a vestibular difference where he's very sensitive to being off balance he's thinking about that chair a solution to that is go get some old tennis balls and put some slits in the balls and ram them onto the tippy leg of the chair, and that will help that uh, chair be more secure. Um, all right. We also so we need we need our sensations for survival, for discrimination or learning, figuring out what's what around us, and uh, we need it for satisfaction. You know, just to feel like I've had enough popcorn, uh, swinging, I've had enough swimming. I need to go get something. So, because I have not had enough popcorn, I need to get some recess and I will just about die if the teacher says, Jimmy, you've been wriggling through math class, so I'll stay in with you to go over these fat, math facts while the ch- other children go outside. Jimmy's going to die if he doesn't get that recess. Jimmy should get outside for a double recess, not a minus recess. We should get kids outside all the time.
1: What's required is some a reframe, right? Because I think teachers truly are well-intentioned. But if you're seeing Jimmy, who's not ge- being comfortable in his seat and being disruptive, they'll see it as he's being disruptive. He's trying to to disrupt the class, whereas what you're painting is he's not safe. He's trying to do the best he can to regulate himself. And so if the teacher only had that awareness, then they would never say, okay, let's take away the recess time because that would be an obvious solution. I mean, your book came out in 1998. Schools weren't aware of it then. Are they more aware of this type of issue now? Or yeah, not,
0: oh, enough. Not, not enough. enough. Hey. <laughs> not enough. Um, I do. I do a lot of workshops and and in-service trainings and sad to say that very few people know about sensory processing. So I'm I'm always I'm always eager to help people get a basis of understanding. Yeah. So okay, we need all our senses to survive and we need what we see to connect with what we hear and I mean imagine if you lived in a vacuum. Life would be difficult. Okay. So what happens when there's that traffic jam in the brain is that kids' responses are not smooth. And a child might be over-responsive. This is very common. The most, the most common category of, of sensory processing challenges is called a sensory modulation. Most, most kids with, with sensory problems are over-responsive. That means they. I call that child the avoider. He he doesn't want the noises and the visual excitement. Um, a lot of kids around him is is going to be distressing because that movement, those sounds, uh, the touch of an you know being bumped um, in the corridor. All of that is unpredictable, and if the child has a sensitive vestibular, proprioceptive, or tactile system, for instance, just walking down the corridor is really difficult.
1: And and these are kids who, I mean, I'm I'm sure a lot will fall in this category, but a child who doesn't like to be hugged, a child who doesn't like to be touched, who who really has issues with clothing, that would be someone who's more kind of this avoider. And I'm guessing you're going to talk about the opposite too, because I think we got one of the opposite ones.
0: Right, right. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Len, about um children who don't like to be hugged because for the 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 mother of the newborn who is stiffening and and trying to twist his little body away from a parent's loving caress and that's really really hard on the parent because you know you think what's wrong with me and i know a mom who whose child was very very over responsive and she would do things wrong, for instance, she would put on more perfume. And she wanted to be more appealing to the child. And instead, she was less appealing. So she cried to me, she said, he only loves his father. Because daddy was very quiet and serene and didn't jiggle the baby. And this mom wanted to dance with him. And and it was too much for that child. So occupational therapy using sensory integration techniques worked with that little boy and things are fine in that family now but not at first before there was understanding so we have the avoider then we have the craver this is the child who is never never sated he never gets enough he wants more more spinning more eating more uh noise Lovely. I'm sorry. Jumping. Jumping. Yes. Yes. Always. Always on the go. Everything is a ladder for this child. He climbs the bookcases. He's he go on the at the playground. He's on the top rung of the swing. Well, no one walks on the top of the swing, and this kid's up there. So uh, this is some. We have you know we have to be aware that this child needs more and more and more. The craver is hard for a parent to know how much to give, because the child himself can't say he, when he's had enough. So say the child likes to go to the park, get on the tire swing, spin round and round, too much rotary movement is not good. Um, some kids really want more than others. So a bit more is okay, but a lot more isn't really good for the vestibular system. So it's. Um, I suggest if you have a child who's always wanting more, 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 seek out an occupational therapist who can help you figure out how to give it in the right amount for the child. And then there's the um, the child who's under responsive, who doesn't notice that he has been spinning too much, or that his body needs to spin a little bit. He he's This is the loose and floppy kid, or he doesn't hear his name being called. He doesn't Know when he has chewed that bolus, that lump of food in his mouth, to the consistency that's appropriate to swallow. So he might swallow too soon. Uh, I had an uncle who was under responsive and he couldn't tell when food was ready. And he used to chew everything 24 times. And that was his answer. He found if he chewed it 24 times, he had learned that was sufficient. Well, we don't, you know, we don't have to treat jello that way, mm. but, uh, but he had found a solution after a lot of trial and error. So those are modulation issues. Then there's discrimination. It might be that the child can modulate or judge how much sensory information he's getting in, but he can't really discriminate what it means. It's like he's saying, wait, what? What is it? Am I falling? Am I hot? Is this bucket uh, going to be heavy? Uh, and you know, you know, the kids that they pick up a bucket of paint or water and it sloshes all over the place. And the, the grown ups' instinct is to think, what the heck? He's picked up buckets before. When's he going to learn? You know, how many times do you have to pick, okay, that kid has discrimination issues. His vision, his tactile, his proprioception input from that interaction with that bucket, it's not grounded. he, he, He hasn't learned it yet. His muscles have picked up lots of other buckets, but he hasn't, he doesn't have like a, proprioceptive memory. So what do we do? What happens with clumsy kids who are, whose discrimination is poor? We tend to say I'll do it. I'll stuff you into your jacket and boots and the car seat and the seat belt. I'll cut your chicken. I'll brush your teeth for you because you you know, you don't have good uh, judgment of how hard to brush it. I'll let you use markers because I know that markers are easy for you. Crayons are harder for you because you have to discriminate how much oomph to put into the crayon. Okay. So we do that not to delay our children's progress, but because we don't want our children to be in torment and we want to get through the day. No doubt. Wrong. We have to make our kids learn to use crayons and stuff their feet into their boots and yeah it takes more time it take we have to get up earlier we have to allow 10 more minutes for that getting into the car process but you know when we've got kids who are clumsy and awkward doing it whatever it is for them it's not going to help them learn and so we make it easy for them now and much harder for them in the future.
1: It's so hard for a parent to fight that impulse, though, because I think every yeah. parent's listening, raising their hand, saying, yeah, that's me, that's me. But, yeah. it, but it almost goes back to the analogy we had before with uh, C-section. You know, you're, in this case, your child needs to go through that process, the natural process of learning. And if you try to shortcut it, you take that away. And that's again, that's not right. setting your child up for long-term success. Right. right.
2: Can- can kids have parts of each? So a craver plus um, avoider plus yes. clumsy. Because I feel like my son has each of those. Like, you know, sometimes at concerts too loud, a sound is too loud. Um, you know, sometimes too it could be too crowded. But then he loves people, loves affection, all of those things. So it's kind of like that there's a... He has his own unique balance, if that's a way to say it. Oh, yes. His own unique balances. Balance. Like he knows what he Uh You know what I mean? So there's. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And a very good question. Um, There are so many permutations. Um, A child might have a specialty like tactile or vestibular issues might be his bugaboo. Or all eight senses might be a difficulty or. Tuesday might be fine and Friday might be wretched. Uh we we found at nursery school that um Friday was the best teaching day. Mm. And that's because I taught at an outdoor school and the chil- children were outdoors for 5 days and then Mondays were um we just had a real easy kind of day on Monday at school because even though this was before cell phones and you know, video stuff. Um, a lot of activities during the weekend were more sedentary. It, it, this is at least in the in the um, group of parents that that I was working with in Washington D.C. Um, you know, other in other uh, milieu, there might be tons and tons of outdoor time on the weekends, and the, and therefore that kid would come to school on Monday and be in terrific shape. <laughs> but but uh, we attrib- we attributed. Uh, Friday being a better day because of all that regular outside play. Cass, you uh, you were asking about can there be discrimination and modulation problems? In, yes, and in many different in diff- many different ways. Um, a common combo is the child who is has overresponsivity to touch sensations and avoids being touched and touching things. So this child's not automatically going to the toy bucket to see what the toys are the kid is holding back. And he doesn't seem to have curiosity about the triangle and the rhythm sticks and the tambourine the way other children do. So we have the tactile avoider and that same child might be the movement craver. So his vestibular and proprioceptive senses are saying, give me more, give me more, give me more. But his tactile sense is saying, give me less. And there's there's another uh, area that I just want to mention. There's a, the modulation issues. There's the discrimination. Then there are what we call sensory based issues, and these are motor issues. So uh, one thing is posture. We need our our tactile, proprioceptive, and vestibular systems to be humming along in order to sit up straight and to have. To be facing forward and to be well balanced. And this, again, looking at nature's design for us, this is our optimum position for our survival to be upright and facing forward, both hands ready to push something away or grab it, both feet ready to run, climb, jump, whatever we need to do. No way does nature want us to be curved over a book, a toy, um, a peanut butter, a jelly sandwich. Uh, we, we're not supposed to be uh, focused on something right in front of us for very long that's bad for our survival. Yep. So posture is really important to be upright. And we see children with sensory processing issues who do curl and um, are loose and floppy. And think of an obstacle course where there's a, ladder to climb, a ramp to cross, a slide to descend, and a tunnel to crawl through. And this is a common setup. The typical child will do that in a nanosecond, a a typical four-year-old, let's say. Uh, A child with sensory processing differences is going to have to think very hard and hang on very tightly. And, do things in different ways. Maybe come down on the slide on her tummy instead of on her bottom. Maybe take a long, long time to reposition her body to get into a position where she can um, creep through the tunnel. So again, not nature's plan. Nature's plan is for us to be instantaneously able to make these, uh, these subtle adjustments in our body plan. And then there's dyspraxia. And dyspraxia is dysfunction in praxis. Praxis is a Greek word for action or moving. So when we are faced with a complex task, and the one I like to use is putting on a seatbelt in a car that we've never been in before, we have to engage five different sensations. The more important it is, the more sense the more sensory systems we use for any task so we have to use our vestibular sense we turn our heads and if we're not comfortable turning our heads if we want to keep our head absolutely straight on our body and we turn our whole body to see something off to the side or behind us then this is hard to isolate our heads just to turn to see where the seatbelt is okay then we use our visual sense to spot where that seatbelt ding-dong thing is. Then our proprioception to stretch our arm. Our tactile sense to grab it. Our proprioception, again, to pull it out and get it right, and which we never do the first time. And finally, our auditory sense is involved to put the ding-dong thing into the buckle and hear it. You know you're not satisfied unless you hear it.
1: you got to hear the click.
0: Right. Okay. Very important. So we're all dyspraxic the first time we put on that strange seatbelt, right? We don't know where it is. We're groping. We're pulling and it's coming out too fast from the wall of the car because ours comes out with a certain amount of force, but this one's different. Okay. So we learn that tomorrow when we drive it, ride in that car, we're better. and. Um, Okay, the third time, piece of cake. For a person with sensory processing differences, it might be 17 times before that's an easy thing to do. So, once again, mommy, you do it. And mommy, don't do it. Take the time, if you can, to say, you can do it. I have faith in you. You can do it.
1: Patience is such a hard thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is so hard. That's given hard go, thing. go, go, gotta get things done. And uh yeah, it's just that's that's a hard concept for a parent to learn, but if they can, it opens up so much. Right. Let's
0: let's talk about what we can do. Is that shall we say
1: yeah,
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: we okay. Um being a detective is the first thing. And it's actually kind of exciting when you begin to see patterns you haven't noticed before. I suggest um, keeping a little pad of paper and pencil in your pocket if you can, and take note of when your child is struggling with something, try to figure out what were the circumstances that came before. Was it a loud noise? Was it, well, we're talking, today we're talking in daffodil season and some people are joyfully bringing in bouquets of daffodils into their into their homes daffodils have a very rich scent and for a child whose scent whose who's olfactory or smell system is very sensitive the child might be on the floor crying and you why what's wrong darling you don't well it can be something like like the daffodils so we need to um, we need to put on what I call sensory spectacles. Put on your pretend spectacles and ask yourself a couple of questions: Is there a circumstance or a, a condition that's just happened here uh, that's causing this behavioral response? That's not what we want. And it's uh, sometimes it's very easy. It can be a it can it can be a smell. It can be Insisting that your child wear a wool scarf and the wool is too itchy and, you know, little kids can't say it. Older kids who have difficulties getting the words out for one reason or another can't say it either. You just see them, they're unhappy. Try to figure out what the sensation is that you're not having a problem with, but your child is. Another thing to ask with your sensory spectacles on is what does my child need that he's not getting? And it's always hard to see what is not there. But I can guarantee I would say 99% of the time the kid is not getting enough movement. Hmm. We've really we've really been changing our delivery of the world to our kids. We, we're really turning our three-dimensional world into a two-dimensional world. I met a mom who said, um, oh, I'm so excited. I just bought an educational video for my two-year-old to teach her how to count. And all she has to do is push the mouse, ma- click the mouse, and on the screen, an orange jumps out of um, the air and lands in a bucket. And a voice says, one. And then she clicks the mouse again, and an orange comes out of somewhere and goes in the bucket and the voice says too. And, and what do you think of that for a good way to teach my child to count? And, and I said, well, have you thought of giving your child a bucket and a few oranges? And, and this mom said, oh, that's so old fashioned. So she wanted my, my approval of this $39.95 that she had just spent on a video. I mean let's remember you know there's nothing as good as a bowl full of lemons and clementines and oranges and a few deli containers of different sizes and roll them around guys and
1: tell that to the school system because yeah. everything's now laptops everyone's got a chromebook right. there's there's right. no real world learning it's a, I get why that's happening but you know you would hope that there would be an appreciation of trying to balance Yes, that with some more outdoor or physical activities, which right. I don't believe is a is on anyone's priority list, unfortunately.
2: And I think it goes to your whole sensory detective, because sometimes I know personally I react to too much screens or too much, you know, EMF, dirty electricity, where I feel triggered or fluorescent lights right so if you don't know why your kid's reacting but it's always like a similar environment or their seat is near a router or they're you know in their classroom they're sitting in this position it's also looking at the invisible things that might be bombarding them as well I'm so glad you mentioned that Cass. in fact um, in in my book the uh,
0: out of St Child grows up I have 50 contributors who wrote about growing up with sensory issues or parenting children with with them? And one uh, one father his name is Peter Sullivan is very interested in the electricity. Are you? Do you know Peter Sullivan? We know you, Peter. Yeah,
2: he's okay. he, he, our friend. He's, yeah. he's
1: been on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. He, we, okay. We hit, yeah. we hit EMFs big on this podcast. Yeah. Oh,
2: and the, okay. The one. Okay. We go, Peter. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Well, we have a wonderful network. Uh, Well, Peter, you know, Peter, Peter tells the story of um, a kid coming home from school the day, the day everything got unplugged at home. And the kid walked in the door and said, what's different? What's different about the house? It feels so nice. And children with sensory issues, children with autism are often like canaries in the coal mine. They are sensitive their difference is so fine. They're not deficient. They are hyper-efficient. They are sensing things that the rest of us dull, ordinary yeah. sensors are not sensing. So we need to ask what is too much for our child and ask ourselves things that we wouldn't think of, like unplugging everything. What sensations don't our kids get? And the number one thing is movement. And the, you know you could start with that in your with your little notebook. Ask yourself: Has my child had a chance to move? I mean, I think uh, schools schools ought to have it uh, hardwired into the curriculum that every ten minutes there's a movement exercise. My colleague Joy Newman and I are developing this in-sync Child method, and we have all kinds of books, and we have a new book coming out. It's, it's a calendar. It's called A Year of Mini Moves for the Insync Child. And it's uh, 52 weekly schedules and Monday and Tuesday, you know, seven seven little ideas on a page. And they're so simple. It's like, jump to something square and put your elbow on it. You know, you can do that kind of thing in a classroom.
1: You, yeah. you,
0: you, you If you don't want the kids out of their seats, you can have them Put your hands on the edge of the chair and uh, push your bottom off the chair and hold your bottom off the chair till you count to seven. Okay, that's a mini move. Let's do that right now, Len and Cass and everyone listening. Put your hands on the sides of your chair. Get your butt off the chair. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, sit down again. All right, your arms should be tingling, your wrists, you should feel it in your wrists. You might feel it in your back. Okay, that's proprioception because you're getting nice input into your muscles and joints. Now you can concentrate better. It only takes us to the count of seven.
1: That'd be great. I mean, something that simple and easy. Um It yes. would be great to see that in the school system. And I hope that does eventually happen, something like that. Yes. But at the, yeah. at the very least, parents can be more intentional at home to do that. And um, I know we, we've, we uh, our son and our daughter, and all of us do something called a GOSCU, which is a, a postural therapy, like exercises to get to move the body and to stretch. Now that takes a little bit longer. So I love the idea of Very short, easy to do, can do anywhere uh, because that movement is really key. And I'm guessing you would also think, you would also suggest that if you're, if you can get barefoot, that that's also another way of enhancing the grounding experience.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think little kids should be, should be barefoot. Uh, Toes are so interesting for babies to discover. It's, It's, it's just wonderful. I have learned, I'm, I'm way away from being a baby and I've, have learned now that shoes are advised for people whose arches begin to fall a little bit. Um, So I'm past the barefoot stage, (laughs) Uh, which is to say that we are sensory processors all our lives and our bodies continue to change and develop. And um, here's a good time to say that uh, parents might be seeing their children cycling. They might see that, um, a baby was very over-responsive to touch, for instance, and then things smoothed out and the primary and elementary years were okay. And then at 13 or so, the child again begins to be very sensitive to things like tags and shirts and the, the quality of the clothing. And well, we can expect that because we go through these phases as, as we develop. It's part of the plan that things will come and go. So if you've been listening, you've had to absorb a lot if all of this is new about sensory processing. Um, you might not have heard this kind of information from a pediatrician or from a teacher. Uh, it's um, Sensory processing is, is still new for a lot of professionals. So, But I know that if you've, if you've been listening, I know that you're thinking, yes, I understand what Carol is talking about. And I want to say to all of you parents, what wonderful parents you are, what caring, loving parents you are. I know that because you're listening to this and to the other podcasts that Len and Cass bring to you. Um, try some of the things I've suggested, like try to be a detective. Compare notes at the end of the day with the other grown ups in the child's life. What did you notice? Did you see how, how, um, how he didn't want to get on the swing last week, but this week he was on the swing on his tummy just a little bit. You know, note when there's when there's progress and don't make it happen too fast. You have to go kind of slowly. Um, notice what the what the conditions are, what the circumstances are that cause a meltdown, because sometimes it you it'll be this great aha for you. And take note of it, time of day matters, what the child has eaten or has not eaten, how much movement the child has had during the day, how much sleep he's had, and the quality of the sleep. How much uh interference there is from his environment. Uh, you know, one person might think the bubbling aquarium is very soothing and the pretty fish swimming is very soothing, and a, a child who is over responsive might think that is just just unbearable sensory input. So I think you'll begin to get excited and you will get empowered and you will have a lot of information about your child and go forth
2: and learn about it. That was awesome. awesome. Thank you, Carol. Want to learn how to avoid the 33 mistakes most autism parents make? Get your free training today. Visit Autism dot com Slash Unstoppable.